Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do it again. <laughs> I do that all the time. Hello and welcome to the latest installment of pilot episodes as always i am joined by my usual air crew uh, i think i'll just go around and introduce you one by one uh, there's the man who has never been into a room that isn't paneled paneled in oak Godders, how are we and always holding a pen with someone taking a photo of me yeah well, which, uh, so what was you that get used to after a while what were you signing well, that was when do you remember when i went up to central flying school and was presiding over the graduation of the qualified uh, flying instructor course. And you gave a talk as well? Uh, yeah, and a little speech yet. And so it's a, I was signing the visitor's book. And as always, as always, yeah, whenever anyone signs a visitor's book, generally there's a photographer on hand to take a picture of you bent awkwardly over a table with a weird grin gripping the pen why um and uh, and that was the one that dunk strangely found the other day and texted all of us uh, ah. seen that one this uh, do you is know a what? thrilling start isn't it i actually thought <laughs> that you would send, send, send that picture so other than uh, giving um pep talks to newly qualified and quite newly qualified instructors what else have you been doing um oh yeah so i was on uh, holiday for a week but prior to that um nice little trip to crete where it turns out heraklion is a uh, a dual use military airbase as well oh. i was trying to spot what they were they were flying out there there was an f5 on a stick so i might have to google that or I'll get someone to uh, to call in and tell us well, um and before that one of the highlights of the week was um i visited mbda the missile manufacturer and saw all sorts of manner of uh, missiles I had a good chat about um meteor which is a brand new um, missile that uh, is just becoming operational on Typhoon, which is an excellent bit of kit. But more about that later, if you want. Yes, please. Uh, well, I actually also went to a dual-use um, air, well, air, airport, airfield. I went to Gran Canaria, and they've got all sorts there. But did, you, did you see any military stuff there? Yeah, there's F-18s, there's P-3 Orions, uh, and there was a Hercules. I thought you didn't wow. like the F-18. They are they are a bit dull. They are a bit dull. <laughs> Multi-role, boo. So uh, yeah, they are. We'll come back back to the F eighteen later. But as military jets go, they are definitely the least sexy. Weirdo. Uh, well, that that weird voice that you just heard there is obviously the instructor's instructor, Dunk. How are you? I'm glorious, thanks, JB. Absolutely glorious. Uh, so just you know, um, fill us in with exactly what you've been doing. Well, not exactly. In fact. Uh, summarise it for uh, sorry let's do that again so just let us know what you've been up to for the last few weeks in in a brief summary of course 
game of two halves for me, actually, JB. I uh, I spent last week um, doing a lot of flying, actually uh, flying to Carno uh, and also flying Hawk up at Valley. Uh. Uh, and the weather, as you can imagine, I mean, it's just been glorious, hasn't it, for the whole two weeks. So that was fantastic up until I flew back into Linton on Friday afternoon. Um, in the glorious sunshine, then had to sit in traffic on the A1 on the way home. So, uh, uh, and then uh, this week has been uh, a, a bit of a, uh, <clears throat> a downturn in fortunes, to be honest, sort of looking wistfully up at the blue sky. Uh, and I've been dressed in blue doing miserable desk work. So, um, last week, so uh, my life, Doug. Yeah, I know, yeah, but you, you chose that life, so bad luck. <laughs> so, uh, when I think about your job, Dunk, I think of you as. Well, basically improving processes and systems for people who, well, people that mentor other people. But you fly quite a lot. So what is it that you're doing when you're flying? He doesn't improve. You're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like the whole listening world to know exactly what you do when you're flying on your own in that Takano, (laughs) mentoring people. (laughs) Well, it's a bit of both, actually. I've I've prepared this answer. Well, first and foremost, it's uh, it's flying currency for me to uh, to remain current, ah. uh, and it's also a bit of a force multiplier in that rather than having to drive five hours over to Valley, uh, I can get there in about forty five minutes, which means that uh, I can do more things when I'm there. So you can stay, li- uh, get more done. See what I mean? So you can literally get. You still from- haven't actually explained why you have to fly your explanation there was you have to fly because you keep current no you said what do i do in the Takano? keep track oh okay come on so, oh, so well, i told so i told you that if you'd like me to tell you why i fly it's because it's bloody brilliant uh, oh, no no it's not no so it's uh, it's because so i instruct on both the, the hawk and the Takano. Uh, so I fly with uh, students that are going through training. Uh, and I also then, sometimes when I'm in my examining role, I uh, pretend to be one of those students in the front of an aeroplane with a uh, an instructor instructing me. And I make terrible, terrible mistakes and see if they pick them up uh, and then uh, debrief them in a... Uh, in an, a very friendly and uh, and uh, sort of... Non-confrontational uh, manner. Not confrontational at all. Um, very fluffy sort of a way afterwards to let them know just uh, what the error of their ways is. Interesting. So basically what you're telling me is by flying, you can crush skulls anywhere in the country within 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest, it's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's generally that. I mean, if I have to go further afield than uh, than Valley, then it might take me an hour to go and, and crush them. But uh, other than that, um, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's about 45 minutes. Fantastic. I prefer God as his pen story. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> he will get your chance. Hold there. And lastly, that voice, because of course you boys like to introduce yourself. Uh, this is the man with more hours than any other RAF pilot setting up Skype accounts. Big Tone, how are we? I've got more Skype accounts than hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, all good. Lots of uh, lots of spit flying and. Uh... And I, strangely, I've met two people who have listened to our podcast, one at Cywell and one at Headcorn. So I've, li- I've uh, yeah, met both You've met listeners. both of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, well done. <laughs> one day we'll have more listeners than contributors to the podcast, and I can't wait for that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's going to take a while, yeah. judging on the, uh, uh, on the questions that I've got back on Twitter. <laughs> um, although, Junk and I had a couple of people come over. Uh, we were both at a... Uh, um, John Egging 
trust dinner the other week and i had a two or three people come over and say they really enjoy the podcast yeah that's good that's Excellent. four that's four yeah wow. <laughs> two or three that could be five there was we 300 people the... in that room three of them came and said they liked it <laughs> Because you didn't mention it on the microphone. Dunk was hosting that evening, so there were 300 comparing. people in there. He did, a, he did a very good job, but didn't mention our podcast. Oh, Dunk, <laughs> come on. Uh, so, Parky, you've been flying uh, two-seater spits. Am I, am I right or am I wrong? Uh, yeah, and a little bit in the single-seater. So, um, yeah, just so, uh, 30 hours this month, which is ridiculous. That's pretty good. So, That's 900 trips. <laughs> so, uh, we, me and me and Parky had a little little bit of a chat before the podcast, and he was talking about the two seater. Now, am I right in thinking that it's the two seater that allows you to take people up and it basically keeps everything else ticking along? Is that how it works? Yeah, it's a bit of a squeeze in the single seater, JB. So uh, it has to be the two seater. And uh, yeah, jump in the back. It's uh, you know, it's got full cockpit essentially. You can fly it from the back. And, oh, really? Uh, a full it's cockpit. Oh, you so kind of look... what? A full cockpit, not yeah. a partial cockpit. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. got all the instruments you need, Duncan, <laughs> and controls, a and a seat. Yeah, it's got the works. So Put a wolf in it. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bit snarly. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, I'll tell you what I've been doing. Which is, first of all, I read Wings on My Sleeve, which is an excellent book. Thank you for that recommendation. But the other book I read, I, it's just completely escaped me now. It's the RAF one. Um, first Light. Oh, uh, so, yes, First Light. Now, Wings on My Sleeve is good. First Light is flipping brilliant. Yeah, we told you. You read fast, JB. Well, luckily, my bike's broken, so I get to read on, on the tram, you see. Ah, so that's two hours. I, did, I said exactly. I said exactly that to him the other day. He'd finished the book in about a day and a half. Yeah, no, I know. From oh, yeah. your first dunk. tweet to him finishing the book was about three point five minutes. Yeah, I know. It takes Dunk a year and a half if there's no pictures. <laughs> well, you got to go quick because I've got an awful lot of podcasting You're being to do. Kind to me there, aren't you? <laughs> He's got to move that ruler down. <laughs> <laughs> For the person reading it out to him, it was a it is a brilliant book, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's superb. One of the things I can't quite get over in First Light is the sheer amount of losses. So this this poor chap goes through training, loses all, loses all his mates, joins a squadron, loses all his mates. Then when he's posted away from away from the squadron, he then loses probably his best mate in the book. It's absolutely brutal. JB, we lo- I don't know about you boys, but we lost you again halfway through that. Yeah. Do, do you think we should go pictures off? And, yeah, uh, let, let's give that a go. Uh, are you there, JB? I am here. Okay, should we go? We'll go pictures off then. Yeah, I'll just probably make it a bit smoother. Gotcha. Right, let's try. Let, let's try. I don't have this. The Mason's ugly, bialding head. But at least I'm not. At least you don't, I'm not holding the phone next to my nose, up my nostril. I saw your breakfast, Parky. <laughs> <laughs> right, I will go from um, my my little bit there, which is uh, I can't remember. Right, well, the first thing that struck me about First Light, other than the fact it's it's really nicely written, uh, 
is the sheer amount of losses. I mean, this poor chap goes, oh, and also his age, which is unbelievable, goes from school, goes through training, loses all his mates, some of them in training, joins a squadron, loses loses mates, and finally gets moved from the squadron, and then loses, well, what is probably his best mate um, after that. It was, it's truly savage. Oh, yeah, it's, that is true, and... Um... Uh, again, the big show. We mentioned it before. I mean, it, I think it, I think First Light does sort of touch on that, and it, it certainly, as you say, he's very eloquent in how he uh, how he writes that, um, Jeffrey. But um, to, to me, uh, even more than that was um, was the big show by Pierre Klosterman and the, the losses in that. Uh, really? it, it was uh, it was just jaw dropping. Yeah, now I've not read that purely because I can't get it on ebook, but I am going to order it soon. Yeah, get it. I I reread on holiday. Well, got halfway through it. The um, Tumult in the Clouds by James Goodson. JB, I don't know whether you read the whole thing, whether you've managed to get through that yet. I'm about halfway through it. uh, Which was one of the that was one of the first ones I I read, and and I really like the way he tells the stories in that because it's not chronological. No, talks about this James Goodson, who's he was um, again very much like Winkle Brown. Starts when he gets sunk. Uh, as a young, uh, as a teenager, heading back to the states after the war started, so heads off, joins the uh, United States Air Force, and then um, comes back, ends up on an Eagle Squadron, um, and then in the uh, the various fighter groups, uh, the Fourth Fighter Group. And one of the points he made was that you'd be there with so and so one day, then he's gone the next, and you just carried on because there was no funeral, there wasn't any memorial, there wasn't anything like that, and plus there was a flipping great war going on at the time. So as much as it was sad, it almost became the norm. Yeah. And uh, uh, I guess that's what Jeffrey is is getting to. And the more you read these books, we listened to that clip from Winkle the other week, and we talked about it afterwards, didn't we, that it is inconceivable what they were going through at that time that you just you can't imagine a war of national survival losing your friends relatives um it's uh and that is something that you become really aware of when you speak to these guys uh, you know out of all of us parky's pretty close to jeffrey wellham who wrote first light has spoken to him lots of times and they're still fun they're still jovial uh, they love the set they tear up at the sound of a, uh, a spitfire uh, when they hear it and and they're often staring off into the distance i think thinking of those people um that they didn't get to see again yeah it's actually quite like parky as well he's often staring into the distance isn't he yeah that's because he can't see anymore similar age (laughs) (laughs) i mean i could that bit in first light when i think his best mate's called peter and uh he gets killed on a hurricane squadron he sort of finds out about it and he just speaks again it's just how jeff writes the book he sort of i think it ends with uh you know peter's gone i will speak no more of him and, and that's almost sums up what it was like. Just yes. Put him to the back of my mind, crack on, another day's about to begin, I might get killed on that day. And, you know, it's just just but, ridiculous how they, they managed to do it and cope, you know. But, but I, I think Jeff admits, you know, it all, it all got a bit, you know, it slowly did build up on him and, uh, you know, it, it took its toll a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to say exactly that. He is one of the few that admits to, a, you know, almost a post-traumatic stress in his book, there there aren't many books like that there's still bravado in quite a lot of these in almost all of them in fact 
Yeah. It, yeah. The most remarkable thing about all the books is just how they get on with it. It's it, it's it's actually hard to com- comprehend, you know, uh, especially when you contrast it to how t- today's society is, rightly or wrongly. It's just that, right, well, we're going to have to get back in the cockpits and off we go. Nothing seems to stop them. No, yeah. I was thinking exactly that with... Uh, we heard Winkle actually talk about it and reading James Goodson's book again the other day. Uh, uh, just the torpedo hits the, the ship that they're all on, uh, men, women, children, and just the carnage and trying to get everyone out, watching it sink, people panicking to get on lifeboats, all of that sort of stuff, which for just any one of us would be the most traumatic thing that had ever happened to you mm. and would happen to you. But then they go and continue and get into a war. It, it just... It, I can't conceive that I, I genuinely can't conceive that I've met these guys, the survivors who tell you they're the lucky ones, look them in the eyes and they have been through all of this. Whereas we've essentially had it so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, particularly myself, I'm, uh, I'm a podcaster and that's it. Um, <laughs> uh, now the last thing that I'll, that I'll mention about these books, unless you want to carry on talking about them, but for me, the, probably, the nicest story, or one of those little quirks, one of the most interesting things, was actually from from tu- I can't say it now, tu- Tumulate. Um, now, do you know if this is right or if this still continues? Can you still wear Texan boots in the RAF? <laughs> you tell I, I, JB texted me this and said, "Can you wear cowboy boots in the uh, RAF?" Then I got to this particular chapter and remembered it, which was about a a tall Texan guy when they converted to the Eagle squadrons and, uh, they were based up in Essex in a, um, I can't remember the name of the airfield and the King came to visit. And as the King's walking around, talking to people, he asked his Texan, any, anything we can do for you? He said, yes, yeah, sir. You could make it, put it in King's regulations that I can continue to wear my Texan, um, boots. And apparently it did go into King's regs that he could, as long as they were black, with no markings on, he could wear cowboy boots in the cockpit. <laughs> Do we know if, if that is, is still possible? Don't know. Well, I mean, on. you could do. Depends if you got caught. Well, don't. You're the, you're the instructor. You must have a version of some regs lying about there somewhere. Yeah, I've got them all. They're all sort of phyladexed um, in my brain. I know every rule, particularly <laughs> those about boots. Don't play cute with me, Dunk. Find out. Roger, I'm on it. <laughs> I, yeah, Google Queen's regs and see if we can wear cowboy boots. I'm going to go and get a pair if we can. <laughs> there was another, uh, another. I know we keep going on about the big show, but uh, as we're talking about boots, in that book he talks about the fact that he kind of, um, he was taking the mick out of himself really and just saying that, you know, I, I kind of, I felt I'd made it as a fighter pilot. So he went and got himself some jodhpurs and riding boots and he was, uh, he, he was you know, whizzing around uh, in Paris um, and de Gaulle, he, he just happened to, to bump into de Gaulle, who was going into the air ministry or whichever building it was, um, as he was coming out. And de Gaulle beckoned him over and said, oh, you know, uh, how are you doing? And he said, yeah, I'm very good, sir. And he's like, how's the, how's the war going? Oh, oh, very good. Thanks very much, sir. He said, um, where's your horse? Say again? <laughs> where's your horse? And it, he looked down at his job, uh, his job person. De Gaulle just said to him, you look ridiculous. Go and take those off and never wear them again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Been scolded by the That is a bit of a calm down, isn't it? It is a bit, yeah. <laughs> Ronnie Hosa. 
it's good good on him for for putting that in the book you know and and absolutely realizing you know that his youth and exuberance had got the better of him uh, are there any are there any books about the Polish contingent which fought in World War in fighter squadrons? Oh, there must be. There's got to be somewhere because there was a tiny. I can't remember which one it was, uh, but I, was it was it Willem's book? Maybe, but they meant but they mentioned the poles and the different level of ferocity that that they fought with. No, it's uh, he's talking about Mike Sabansky in uh, Chilmite in the Clouds. Yes, I am. Uh, it, so this guy who we ended up joining the united or the uh, the air force out in america with him by the time he'd got there he'd been an infantryman in poland and had just seen his whole world collapse relatives die had fought his way and then managed to get out of europe by a massively circuitous route to end up at a family friends in new york to then uh because i think he had a Oh, yeah. um, his family friend is a is some big deal in um, in aviation, like first guy to yes, fly the Atlantic right. or something. Yeah, exactly. Knew uh, Charles Lindbergh or something. That's it. And so got him into the Air Force, and he was just ferocious to the end. He and remember in that particular story, the, he's last seen going in for a yet another strafe on a train somewhere, and. The intelligence they got post-war on this particular attack was that the Germans thought they had kamikaze pilots because this guy was obviously shot up, came back round for another one, his guns emptied, so he just rammed this train in the end, just flew his aircraft into it. Um, and everything that you see written about the, uh, the Polish flying was that they were a complete level above anyone else just in terms of determination um, and bravery, if you like, but uh, I think it's because they had seen the horrors on their home turf and uh, were avenging a lot of the time. Yeah, it, it, it's truly humbling stuff. I'm going to tease this, okay? I want you boys to do, because I know you've read everything there is to read, or almost, is think of some more re- for, some more recommendations and uh, give them to us at the end of the podcast. Oh, good. Uh, That's it. Got it. it Got it. I'll have to ask my reader. <laughs> uh, now um the RAF released a a tweet this week i'm sure they did it uh, in on other channels too but uh, there will be a fly past and they have now announced what will be in the fly past yeah very exciting uh july the 10th um down the mall uh, over buckingham palace and um it's a fair old whack of aeroplanes if I don't know whether people have seen the tweet. I've got it in front of me, but it starts with a Puma, Chinook, a Jumo and Jupiters, which are two training helicopters or two types of training helicopters. I'm sure there'll be lots of them. Dakota, Lancaster, Spitfire, Hurricane, uh, Prefect. Yes, that's my (laughs) aeroplane. Climbs better than a Typhoon. Uh, Tucano, Shadow, Hercules, A400, Globemaster, C-17, BA-146, Sentinel, Voyager, Rivet Joint, Sentry, Hawk T-1, Hawk T-2. Tornado GR4, Lightning, F-35, hurrah, Typhoon, hurrah, and Red Arrows. It's a rather expensive fly past. That is, don't concentrate on the cost, JB. Okay. It's, <laughs> that is, uh, that's a belter of a fly past, you know, that would be, Dunk, are you involved in it? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll be, um, you'll be pleased about this. So I am involved in the practice so uh i i'm 
I'm taking my little Tucano and I'm going to pretend to be a Lancaster and five fighters. Um, so I take the place in the practice of, uh, of BBMF. So uh, there'll be a lot of noise in the cockpit uh, with me trying to replicate Merlin engines uh, as I use a map and stopwatch to try and find where, where I'm going. Excellent. Um, yeah. Now, the brief they... tomorrow, actually. We're going down to, uh, to Holton tomorrow for the big brief. So um, uh, now... it'll, be, it'll be interesting because it is, um, you, you know, organising uh, an event like that. Uh, the deconfliction plans and the abort plans and all of those things are, are extremely complicated. Um, I was going to actually ask so, that uh, because I think and... about what you're asked to do on a daily basis. You know, mission planning must be substantially more complex than a flypast. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, the, the, this one, JB, the, the biggie is obviously the, the helico- helicopters up the front are not going massively fast. And then, oh. you know, B, BBMF, you know, with the sort of Spitfire, Hurricane, Dakota, Lang, they're not, they'll be sort of about 180, but all the jets behind are sort of doing 300. So the, the guys on the ground, hopefully it looks like a seamless and all the spacing between the formations is perfect. Oh. You know, maybe sort of, I don't know what it'll be, sort of... Uh, 10, 20 seconds between them. But actually what's happening is all the jets are catching up. You know, the BBMF are catching up the uh, the helicopters and all the jets are catching them up. And and the real deconfliction is, clearly if they all egress, left London going the same way, they would overtake and, you know, massive collision. So it's all a bit weird. The the, uh, the last few years, the, um, the helicopters hang a bit of a left and go south. And then BBMF come off right and actually throw in a, a gentle orbit to let all the jets go through at the same speed, then the BBMF actually, if you were sort of looking at this from kind of northwest London, they will leave last. So it's it's ridiculously complicated, just as much the timings and the formations, and, you know, you've got hundreds of aircraft. You know, they're pretty unwieldy formations, and, and it's it's the getting in and getting out is, is often the complicated bit. Uh, and JB, uh, you know, we we joked about the expense there, but actually, when you said what you do on a day to day basis compared to this, the uh, I've I've said I don't know what the boys think, but uh, I've always said that proper time on target, you know, looking good information, fly past like this for your non Red Arrows pilot, um, for you know, for them it's their bread and butter, um, but for everyone else, um, it's a real heartbeat inducing event. And just sitting through the planning process, the, you'll do a massive brief. Um, there'll be a practice where the, the guys will go and practice, as Dunk's talking about doing in a, in a few days um, somewhere. Normally when we've, done the, the, when we've done the Queen's Birthday fly pass or other fly pass, it's been up over Waddington, mm-hmm. you know, so a sort of fairly empty part yeah. of the country. And the skills you are using within this fly past as a pilot or as air crew as part of a uh, a crew um are exactly what what we all do on a day-to-day basis um but just you know the the guys in this will have never been in a formation this big will uh, um you know the eyes will be out on stalks looking for other airplanes listening to air traffic wondering what's going on the the people in formation are trying their hardest just to uh, uh you know to stand a decent formation um and it really is in itself awesome training you know and it is something completely different so you don't get just used to doing what you do on a day-to-day basis so it is actually a really good thing and and everyone would be massively proud to be involved in it and as god has said you know the fact is that uh, this is not something so putting a 
Uh, recently, there was a 16 ship of tutors that, uh, that, that got together, uh, and I was the photo chase in the, uh, in the Tucano. Um, and some very experienced pilots in there, but they're very experienced at doing something very, very different. Um, actually having 15 other aircraft in close proximity to you and trying to work out the references so that you're exactly in the right place and it looks correct from the ground. Um, it, it, it sounds like it's very simple, but it really isn't. Um, and, of course, it's not something that people practice every day because they can't. They've got a day job to do. Um, so there is some practice that, of course, goes into this, but not an awful lot. So the learning curve is pretty steep. I see. So, yeah, hey, hey, Goddard, does it does it mention the, um, you know, what the formation shapes will be and what they're portraying? And are, are we allowed to discuss those? No, it doesn't say that. What it has got is the uh, is the route on the uh, on the fly past, which is a, is the fairly standard route that we know and love. In that, um, you know, most of the fast jets and large aircraft will be coming from the the Suffolk area, um, and will head in a southwesterly direction down to a certain point in London, at which point, uh, you know, they're flying over the mall. Um, then they'll continue straight on, and it shows that the BBMF will be coming in from the uh, the Hendon area, and yeah. the helicopters, uh, the same way that they normally do, are probably from the south, actually. Um, and that, that is um, the, the, one of the skills as well, which, you know, all we've spoken about so far is just the, the run-in and actually flying the fly past and being there on time half of it is actually getting joined up in the first place you know taking off from all these different bases in the country and especially for that big train of air aircraft that's coming in from suffolk is the hold positions that they get into and then you how you feed into that train that you know the conga yourself you know that is the really difficult bit looking out there'll be deconfliction altitudes all this sort of stuff um but it is it's not easy especially for those airplanes out there without radars yeah, the, the kind of order, so they call it an op order, operations order, but it, it's like a book, you know, it, it takes a lot of reading to, to see this. And, I mean, it's fairly obvious, I think, what, what shapes or numbers will be written, but I can remember for the, uh, the Diamond Jubilee, the boys, I think, it, the dunk, it was the Hawks that did E2R, didn't they, in the sky? And then I think Takanos did a 90. And yeah, I think that's absolutely yeah, right. Creating yeah. that shape and creating those numbers, you know, that... That's pretty unusual, you know, big formations and ridiculously unwieldy. You know, you if you're something like a, you know, an E2R, the, the leaders of all the formations are flying in line abreast. So it's fairly difficult formation to do and they'll be very wide to create it. And then all the other boys are sort of obviously formating on them. But, yeah, it is. that That's, um, that's fairly A-level stuff, I think. So just out of interest, how slowly can you fly a fast jet? Uh, I think the, the I reckon they'll be about the sort of 300. They could they could happily. I mean, a typhoon. I've done line of stern on a lank at 140, and it's it's absolutely fine. But it's just not particularly comfortable. So they they pick a, a mean speed that's sort of good for the, you know, the the big jets, the Hercs, and you know the you know a, a mean for all of them. So some of them will be towards the top end of their speed, if you like. Yeah, and some will be at the bottom, but I reckon it will be circa three hundred. Ah, so it isn't the fast jets that aren't able to fly slowly, is it? Is it rather the large aircraft? Yeah, they they they're probably. I don't know, help me out, boys, but I, I imagine 
you know, anything above 300, it gets a bit lumpy in a in a, in a jet at low level. Yeah, I think that's the half of it, isn't it? Is just a, a decent speed where in a fast jet, you've got catch up potential. Um, and in a um, in an airline, in a type airplane, that's a comfortable speed, a normal speed to be flying around at. Um, so uh, it, it, it gives a lot of, um, uh, you know, there's a, uh, either side of that. You know, you, in a fast jet, you've got almost 100 knots either side. Well, you know, several hundred on the top end, but, you know, 100 knots, 200 knots on the lower end to play with. And those um, large airplanes just do what they normally do because they fly them like airliners on a, on a regular basis. You know, uh, it, it's not like um, whizzing a fast jet around the sky. Nice. Right. Well, I did say, right, I wasn't going to refer to those books at, uh, anymore, but I am because it sort of all ties, ties in. So you were saying that the boys weren't particularly familiar with formation flying, certainly not on this level. Now, in um, Wings on My Sleeve, uh, the author continually talks about setting up at, um, aer- uh, aerobatic teams in his, ve- in his various squadrons. Do you guys still do that? Is there an aerobatics um, element to, um, you know, uh, say, the squadrons that you served on? No, so the, I think the, the Reds, you know, almost put a stop to it, if you like, because, you know, uh, we decided to have a professional team that was full-time boys that yeah. were picked. Our various squadrons formed the, you know, with the Nats initially back in 65 and then uh, formed, uh, then went to the Hawks and formed the Reds. So prior to that, um, there were, there were very, I mean, Trevor One had a team of, um, of Lightnings that they used to fly around, the Black Diamonds, the um, 56, I think they were Lightnings as well. They were called the Firebirds, and they had a, a display team. The, CFS the 90, had the Yellow Jacks, didn't they? Yeah, 92 Squadron had some Blue Hunters, and they joined. The, there's some ridiculous, was it 22 is the max aircraft? Oh, they, they looped. Yeah, it day, is, yeah. But it, it's 20 plus, and they... Wow. It was the Red Arrows with the, you know, I think, the, the you know, just a load of Hunter Squadrons, all with their best boys, and they... Just joined up at the Farnborough Air Show and uh, and looped twenty two odd aircraft, which is ridiculous. But yeah, since then, you know, there's less squadrons, there's you know, just more time for ops and stuff like that. So there's just you know, there's just not the time to to work out a display. But these boys, they were doing pucker air shows. You know, they would have a you know a, a twenty minute routine in their lightnings with nine lightnings. I mean, just kind of like the Red Arrows. It must have been awesome to watch yeah well, it started off it's around the second world war because it was a skill thing you know airplanes <laughs> were new uh there was barnstorming all of that sort of stuff going on and people are coming uh, massed crowds coming to see all this this um the newfangled uh airplane but then within the squadrons because flying in especially the way the uk tactics uh, the brit tactics developed was flying in close formation was seen as such a a large part of what they did in terms of covering the leader's tail that they used to exactly as Winkle talks about select pilots and there'd be inter squadron competitions, you know, very much like inter squadron shooting competitions and these sorts of things. And it, it just continued from there. Um, and because it absolutely honed their formation flying skills, it, it continued for a long time. Well, that's exactly we what... still, we still do it in training. So um, we've got, it went away for a long time. No one did it except the Reds. But um, now if you're authorised, um, instructors, when they're doing their continuation training, they're able to go and do it. I mean, it's not a huge amount, but it's looping and rolling. So they can do aerobatic uh, formation flying. 
Um, and again, it, as God was just saying, it just um, keeps that skill set sharp. So uh, this is what, I that's guess, not at low level dunk, is it? And that's not done at air shows. It's it's no higher than uh, than a hundred and fifty feet. Ah. No, no, of course no. It's at uh, is it? Uh, you'd have a base height of uh, five thousand feet, and uh, and yeah, you, you, it's not doing air shows, as you say. It's just it's purely uh, as a um, to sharpen skills. So one for dunk then. Uh, I assume aerobatics is still very important, but formation aerobatics not so much. Is that is that basically it? Yeah, 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 pretty much. I mean, really, the it's the formation skill that that formation aerobatics is um, is honing. It's not the aerobatic skill uh, as such. Um, although, you know, I suppose it does actually, in terms of leading it, you have to be cleared to be able to lead that uh, formation because you have to be smooth uh, and you have to be uh, put pretty steady in your I- inputs. And the boys will remember well how uh, unsmooth and unsteady I was uh, when I was out the front, so they don't let me do that anymore. So um, <laughs> the uh, but it, it's it's actually the, the formation element to it rather uh, rather than the aerobatic element. And indeed, I'm sort of going off on a little bit of a tangent, yep. but... Yeah, certainly for Hawk T2. So at basic training, you know, the students will learn aerobatics. But when we get to Hawk T2, we don't do aerobatics anymore. We put that into sort of a combat environment and we call it max performance maneuvers. And we actually uh, try and teach them then how to um, perform their aeroplane such that they uh, they can start to understand how they're going to fight an enemy. I see. So, yeah, right. So in my mind what i thought originally was oh maybe they do do this because you know in the army they uh, they do that thing where they uh, assemble gun carriages and there's not really much practical use for it but it's just inter um interregimental competition uh, what kind of things do you do you guys get, get up to then um inter squadron just drinking really so there was a it it sort of dropped out for a while and parky will remember these well going to to cyprus but one of the things we used to do quite a lot was inter squadron bombing competitions um in ground attack airplanes i remember this well because i had to wear donkey ears all night having dropped the longest bomb they've ever seen at kappa frasca um (laughs) at uh what what is the longest bomb? that that that, that doesn't make any sense sense to me so what does that sorry so 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 you go and uh, you fly around this range and you fly a standard academic pattern. It's a bit like flying circuits at an airfield and you're flying against a target. I was in the Harrier at the time in the 90s. We were flying with um, small three kilogram practice bombs. And clearly the aim is to get the bomb in the, uh, you know, in the middle of the bullseye. Yeah. But the range control officer is sat down there looking out over the range and they've got the particular equipment. And when you drop the bomb, they will then say over the radio, um, you know, 23 at six. So 23 feet. Was it measured in feet back in the yeah. day? Okay. Yeah. yeah. 23 feet at six o'clock or 200 at six. And you go, oh, flip a neck. Or I need to adjust how I'm doing it. And there are various different ways um, and modes of dropping. And on this particular, I was the last Harrier. It was the last pass on the last ever Harrier bombing competition at this range in Capafrasca in, in Sardinia. We fly out of a place called uh, Mamanu. And we used to go there because the weather was like it is in the UK at the moment, but most of the year round. So beautiful weather to go bombing. Um, a load of different ways of, of you know, having to change altitude, um, change the way you were dropping the bombs. 
and uh, I was in the lead position at the time in terms of scores. And I came around on this last <laughs> one, and instead of pressing the button on the throttle, which turned it from a, a manual attack into an auto attack, I actually pressed the pickle button and let this bomb go um, about two and a half miles short of the target. Wow. So they, so they, it landed in the sea or something ridiculous like that and they're unaccessible at six o'clock. And so, so as a result, at the, the get-together afterwards, and there's a big thing about marking the tapes, you know, were you on angle, were you on speed, um, are you pickling when it hits the target, are you making offsets right, are you correcting for the wind, all of this sort of stuff. So, you know, it really was fun. And again, that would get the heart going as well. Um, you have prizes for the good ones. And I was the one who wore the donkey ears for the rest of the evening. For dropping that must have been a bad feeling when you realized your thumb was pressing. the button. Oh, no. I, can, I can still remember it now. Pressing I can imagine your face, Goddess. The wrong hand going, oh. His little oh, eyes drooping, the shoulders a... slightly slumped. I, I, oh, actually, no. I do remember, you know, as a... Um, whatever I would have been there, 23, 24-year-old, you know, height of my powers fighter pilot, um, wanting to eject and not actually fly back to the uh, back to the airfield and see the rest of the boys. And then claim technical difficulties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you do. Anything like that, you then spend the rest of the sortie wondering how you can lie your way through it. And... <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm just looking, that's the equivalent of... a. Uh, Trying to bomb St. Helens and annihilating Wigan, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, not my best day, but, you know, like all of these things, I learned more about that. <laughs> there was another thing in, um, there was another thing at Valley. I think it was called the Pimar Trophy, but I, I've got a funny feeling I might have that, uh, that, that wrong. The name might have changed. Pimar was um, uh, a chap that unfortunately lost his life. He was an instructor there, and they, they, they named this trophy after him. And it was a... Um, Sort of, I guess, in a similar vein, um, and I think at one point you did have to drop a bomb as part of it, but it was far more complicated. So you, you went off around uh, way, so you took off from Valley, and then you had to go and you had to hit targets. You There were people at each target that assessed if you were right over the top and you had to hit them on time. And this was in Hawk T1s at the time, so there was no nothing but a map and stopwatch. And you were given... Uh, times to be over certain targets um, and be in certain places um, and um, and then you had to drop a bomb at the end of it and come back within a certain time and land uh, you know so that you had to be closest to the number so there was all sorts of elements to it I mean it was quite a, a complicated um, evolution uh, it was a fantastic competition and again you know it uh, it really honed people's skills in uh, and, and it was a very hotly contested um, prize to win it won't surprise you I didn't win it well, in, so... in, the, in, the, in the fighter squadrons as well JB most of the um, most of the squadrons will have what's called a combat ladder so exactly the same as a squash ladder about that, about so, that's that. yeah so exactly the same as a squash ladder you go out you beat someone you move up uh, you know and um, th that is that is a great leveller um, especially as you start getting more experienced and older probably your ego is getting bigger you just don't want to be beaten by the the youngster on the squadron and um so again that really gets your heart going and and really teaches you a thing or two about what we call bfm basic fighter maneuvers that sort of thing so there's a ton of stuff out there that people do that makes it more interesting than just going out on a on a training um 
sortie because that competition really does get the heart rate going and forces people into mistakes like idiots pressing the wrong button in the aeroplane. Well, well, quite. Well, uh, it's weird. I was listening to a Jacko Willenick podcast, which if you're into this sort of thing, you might be into that too. And he had a F-18 pilot on who um, was one of, the, one of the Top Gun instructors. Now, I don't know how true this is, but he was saying that you know, lads who are you know, just in regular squadron service, when they come over to Top Gun, they are basically out, out of the sky within literally a few minutes. They, they don't even see the, the instructors coming. Does any of that ring true? Yeah, I, with, with Top Gun, it definitely does. Yeah, I, I went and visited it um, probably about three years ago or so. Um, we've had a couple of Brit guys go through it. In the, all around the world, in all the different air forces, there will always be a weapons instructor course. So I went through one on, on the Harrier. There's one on the Typhoon. There's, uh, um, there's one on the, uh, on the GR4. And in the U.S., the United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School at Nellis is a hugely famous weapons school um, and a really, really good product. Um, out of it uh, and the navy have got obviously uh, top gun used to be at miramar when the u.s navy were in there has now moved to to fallon um but top gun is more of a close in combat type course it's not as long as some of the other courses out there so the guys at the end of it do absolutely become air-to-air combat ninjas um and because the instructors are just doing it day in day out day in day out day out and it's not the flying it's just the flying as well you know one of the hardest things i ever did in flying terms is when i was on exchange with the f-16 i did my instructor pilot rating out there and you had to be able to draw a combat engagement um almost perfectly so that it looked if you had um a, uh, you remember in Top Gun, they've got that sort of overview of the fight with the little lines flying around in the sky when they're in the debrief. Yeah. Our drawing on a whiteboard, you, it had to look like that. It had to be perfect so you could then point out the errors that the student had made. Um, and, you know, you check this all through by drawing it from the radar tapes and so on. It was so A-level, but it taught you so much about basic fighting. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
maneuvers and um, the tactics you used, when to use certain <clears throat> maneuvers and so on. And so the instructors, especially at Top Gun, that are just doing this day in and day out, are utter, they, they will be the best in the world at air combat in their particular airframe. Um, so, yeah, that does ring true. Long answer, but yes. Amazing. So, <laughs> so um, Parky, what is the equivalent that we've got here? I mean, you must have seen so, some form of variation of that in the RAF. Yeah, I mean, we've got weapons courses. So every jet, if you get selected to be a qualified weapons instructor... Air defense. So it, it used to be, as an air defender, we, we used to have sort of mum movers. So, don't you a QI guess on the on the hawk were you when you were instructing on it? Yeah, and I was. Yeah. would have been. We call it a QI qualified weapons instructor on the uh, on the Harrier. So he was he was the the boy that was trying anything to do with weaponeering. But that would have mainly been bombing. But there would have been a little bit of I guess some sidewinder on the Harrier. Yeah, we on pretended the, we knew about air combat. Yeah, I think exactly. Yeah, and then on the uh, you know. Back in the day on the Phantom and on the, the F3, you know, you had a nav and a pilot, but they were the, the weapons, the, the Quip and the Quinn, the QY weapon, pilot and the navigator. They would, you know, be the sort of, I guess, or they, a lot of the time was on air combat they and on that course, but it wouldn't just be that. It would be all anything to do with the tactics, the weaponeering of it. It was strange on Typhoon because we then amalgamated a lot of the boys and, and most of them had done exchanges. So, you know, Goddard came back from the F-16. I'd done an F-16 in exchange. We had Mirage boys, F-18 boys, F-15 boys. And it was it was a bit weird. We were kind of working out how to fight the jets, you know. And a lot of it, it doesn't change. You know, there's just principles in air combat. You need to, you know, maximize the performance of the aircraft. It's where you put your lift vector. It's, it's what you do in certain maneuvers. And you're, you're just watching the other aircraft and... You know, I guess I guess as well, Parky, in an F three, it's how much distance you can put between you and the enemy. <laughs> I, I, guess, I knew that one would be coming. <laughs> I mean, put the wings forward, all of the flaps and slats down immediately, you and know. they small white flag from the rear of the tail. <laughs> I, I can remember doing. I don't know who was with. It was we. I was doing a, one of the shows. We went out to Farnborough, and it, I just for that one, it was just we went with the Harrier, and we were just both going in there. But we briefed it and everything like that. It's like, look, we just need to burn down some fuel. So just before we get there, we just do some Harrier doggers. And and it was rare that you just did 1v1, mainly if you were doing some F3 Tornado versus Harrier. It would generally, I think, be 2v2. And it would, you know, it, 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 there's something very pleasurable, I just, about 1v1. We used to call it DACT, dissimilar air combat. And I tell you, it was a good fight, honestly, between the Harrier and the, uh, and the F3. And it was sort of mid-flap and blow, and this Harry had his nozzles in different places. But it was a it was a long fight. You know, some fights can be over in you know thirty seconds, and this was a a sort of eight-minute epic until I think I ran out of petrol and had to sort of call a knock it off and bravely call it a draw. But it, it was good. It was very much close in, and you know I can record. Goddess, did you do one v one in your F sixteen against an F fifteen? And, and yeah, did F fifteen, F eighteen, Mirage. Yeah, and I, I, all of those, but the best fight I had was against an F-15 1v1. Same fit, we just had a centerline tank on, and it, and it was just awesome, just that, that that whole bit. And, you know, I've done air combat in, I guess, four, four fighters, and, and nothing changes. It's just the performance varies. Some of them sustain G better. Some of them, they've got a bit of a niche, so you try and engineer the fight to go a certain way, but often you can't, and then the other mate will try and, engineered a fight to go better for his aircraft, if you see what I mean. And and that would have been the case back in, you know, if a, a Spit Mark 9 and a Focke-Wulf 190 met, you know, very, very equal. But they probably knew where they could just 
in certain heights or certain bits, certain performance, they could just get the edge. And uh, yeah, you know, we could we could bang on about it for hours and so, hours, but it's a, so, it's a fascinating subject. So, Parky, how on earth, when you're in a turning fight, one on one, do you knock an F15 out out of the sky? So, I mean, in, in the 16, it would literally. So, all these things generally, the, the best fight is when you. We, we call it the butterfly split. So look from above, you do, you, you're flying side by side, you go outwards turn for combat, you maybe fly for about, I don't know, 20 seconds, and you turn away by about 45 degrees, and you're just staring at each other. And generally, you, you have to stay level until it's inwards turn for combat, and now you're maybe three miles away, and essentially, you point at each other, and you just keep looking at each other. You ignore any head-on missile kills, any of that stuff. So it's... You're still, the, trying to, you're still trying to do it, aren't you? So you're using all the kit in your aeroplane you trying the, to... The, the, yeah, the fight starts post-merge. So you, you oh. merge, you hit the merge, so you're pointing at each other, 180 out, and then it is fights on. So it's kind of neutral. You have to honour a thousand-foot bubble, but you can kind of cheeky lead turn. You can do all sorts of stuff, but essentially that is how the fight is set up. You meet... 180 pointing at each other you go past each other and then it's fights on and you know if you've got a jet that can turn better if you fly that jet better if you lose the vertical more blah blah you hopefully will end up and and nothing is better to be honest especially if it's similar types and you're in the same fit with the same fuel if you end up gunning the other aircraft that recovery is a pleasant feeling because you know (laughs) you've got it you've done it and you know Dunk tragically will never be able to feel this, but it's great, <laughs> isn't it? It is. It is an amazing feeling. The other thing, as well, in it, JB, is that um, we need to get back to formation at some point, don't we? But the yeah. um, uh, so one of the trips on the on the USAF Fighter Weapons School was what they call a defensive BFM. So you'd start off in a particular formation that the guy is only a mile away from you and is pointing at you, and it is now your job to try and turn that from defensive into offensive. So already you, you, it's, you know, it's the worst place you've started from. But the instructors on this first trip that they did would never, ever, ever call a gun's kill. They would just watch the guy in front squirming, and the whole trip was about at what point did he give up. Oh, because, wow. Because it's physically in the, um I found it more in a Viper than in an F-16 than anything. I don't know about you, Parky, but... Flying uh, defensive to them, it was like I'd sprinted a hundred meters, you know, after every turn. And, you know, eventually when when the set does finish, even if it's only 30 seconds, one minute, you are breathing like you, you've just sprinted 400 meters. You know, yeah. you're absolutely sweat dripping down your face. Your body is under so much pressure under those uh, under the G forces as well. And so this particular trip where they did that they did that. The guy is just defending until they run out of gas. He's an absolute bastard. It, I can't imagine how horrendous that is. Now, presumably... Did you just swear? No. We have to cha- it was we have you to that said we weren't rating, allowed no. to swear. I, did, I didn't swear. Yeah, we're going to have to go and change the podcast rating. Cheers, mate. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Hey, I mean, the other thing, though, on that is the fact that not only are you pulling G, but, you know, as you're defensive and you're having to look, you know, whilst pulling G, look right the way around, you know, over your shoulder, behind the seat. It is just so uncomfortable. Hey, I was and just going to you talk about DACT. I was on defensive. <laughs> Say that again. Uh, an expert, yeah, you are, I'm listening to you because you are the expert on a defensive BFM. <laughs> yeah, I've got a very sore neck. The... Um, uh, I, I went and did some DACT uh, when we were down in Gioia del Col in Italy uh, against um, Italian F-104 starfighters. So, um, you know, just tiny little wing, effectively a rocket with two little stubs for, for, for wings. But we didn't do the butterfly split that uh, Parky's just described. We, we had some controllers which would, you know, put us together. So we were all, you know, we were excited about uh, fighting these F-104s. And uh, so the, the controller was saying he's on the nose 10 miles. He's on the he's on the nose five miles. So you, you've got eyes on stalks and you're you know, you're ready to fight because who whoever sees the other aircraft first is generally going to have the advantage. He's going to be able to maneuver his aeroplane um, aggressively to try and take advantage of having uh, having sight first. So, Why didn't you just use your radar, Dunk? <laughs> I've got a story about that as well. But um, the uh, so as, as we came in, um, at this, uh, I saw this F one hundred and four, and I thought, "Oh, brilliant! I've got him." So I started lead turning, and he didn't turn at it. He just went, boom! He just kept going. Didn't turn. That was it. Didn't see him. He went and landed. So I did a one fifty five zero, and that was it. Oh well, there you are. So F F one hundred and four. That is an interesting little aircraft. Oh yeah, I mean that would be something to fly, wouldn't it? I mean, it is a rock. True, they had a, a version of it had an ejector seat that ejected downwards. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and they uh, called Widowmaker as well, didn't they? Yes, because do you know how many crashed? A lot. One hundred and ten in the European Air Forces alone. One hundred and ten. Yeah, that's good knowledge, JB. Uh, I'm on Wikipedia because uh, I was reading. Uh, strange enough, I was reading about it the other day. And I just remember reading about the loss and thinking, bloody hell, that's that's immense. Well, you just swore well, as well. I, I, I just thought that um, you went off onto Wikipedia when another dunk started telling a story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm reading well, about the. Yeah, uh, when I was doing pilot training, I had uh, I was bizarrely did it in in uh, America in, with the USAF, but we had Germans and Italians on my course, so our sort of night where we all got what aircraft we were getting loads of the boys got uh, 104s and the i think it was the the german boys they, they it was literally it was going out in 1984 or it was 85 actually but they then reinstigated one last course so all the boys thought they were going to get f4 and tornado and then suddenly there was a couple of 104s and their faces when they got posted 104 it was just a i'll never forget it a picture because it was just it had that sort of well, good or bad? Old status. No, they they were dead happy. But I think they were. If we're going to have to up our game a bit in terms of landing the thing, you know, because it was, yeah, it was just uh, it had no wing. You know, it was just such a fast approach speed. It was ridiculous. Yeah, it's quite a cool looking aircraft, though. There's no two ways about that. No, oh, it's great. It is. It's a fantastic looking machine. Uh, right. So uh, we're actually flying through this. We're on fifty six fifty six minutes, boys. So. Well, uh, so we have got some questions because uh, I did. Okay. Um... Now, Godders, come on! I'm a professional. I've got the questions in front of me. Oh, look at you! I know. It, to be fair, it's the first time in about ten attempts that I've actually managed to remember the questions. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to let you re- read them anyway. All right. Yeah. Well, 
Well, you caught me on the hot there. Well, you um, you get the clearly. bell because I'm going to start with one, okay, uh, from Stephen Proctor, and Stephen oh, asks uh, this: uh, there there are many many aircraft of which there are no examples left. If uh, if you could bring bring one back to fly, which one would it be? Wow, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, no no examples. Mm. Mm. Tempest for me, easy. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, he's got in there. Well done, Goddess. Okay, yeah. So we're talking airworthy examples. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'd, 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 yeah, I thrash around in a uh, in a Hawker Tempest any day of the week if you let me. I like the thought of that, but how about the SR seventy one? Get in. Aren't they still flying that? No. no. Yes, 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 yes. I think. Um, that's still being flown. It's Who def- by? It's 100% not. I, I think that as well. No, Dad. Dunk's got well, it. Dunk's good. Well I'll done, Air Commodore Godfrey. On I'll your... tell you what I'd like to see fly again, just uh, because I flew on its wing and it was just so cool, Is Concorde. That was a yes. beast. That is cool. I'm nailed that, boys. We've that nailed is, it. Uh, well, actually, that is a do you know what? Shout. That is a very good shout. I think you've missed one. And no matter what anyone did, you could never have maintained any of these, and I'm pretty sure there's none flying. How about an ME262? No, there is one. There's is one there? Flying. There is. How yeah. do they do it's that? Got, yeah, it's got uh, kind of modern engines in it, though, JB, because it was going to... It's in Germany somewhere. I think it's run by the... Um, it's in Munich by the sort of... It's not the Air Force. It's by... Who would... Who's the sort of BAE systems equivalent in uh, in Munich? Oh, uh... oh, it's well, it's Airbus now. I think it, you know it yeah. was. Um... Well, they, they've got a mu- they've got a music uh, a sort of flying collection, and they were going to bring it over to one of the air shows. And, and strangely, they were looking at it was going to do a Duxford air show, but it couldn't land there. You know, they wanted to put it on some fairly long concrete. It's just not quite long enough at Duxford, so it was going to. They were looking at provisionally bringing it uh, into. Uh, Coningsby, and it would have just been so good having you know a two six two in the hangar with our Spitz, Harry's Lank. I wonder what they'd have talked about that night. Yeah, yeah. So when you say new engines, I mean like equivalent engines or actual just modern yeah, engines. It, yeah, because the, I mean the, the the jet engines, the Jumo, whatever it was that the the two six two had twenty hours. The, 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 the Germans were just utterly hurting for for metal, and it was so weak to make the turbine blade. So. I think you know the jet engines would last about fifty hours of flying, yeah, and so you'd almost throw them away and put a new one in because the metal was just not up to the job, you know, at the time. Whereas I think we had better metal in our, you know, meteors. You know, they they were just more robust. So th- th- you know, it would have just it would be so ridiculous to get a two six two flying with original engines because you'd have to, you know, every fifty hours put a new one in, and it would cost millions. So yeah, I mean, they've I... got they've got a similar little biz jet engine that fits into the, uh, you know, into the uh, engine, and, yeah. uh, and and just works. So uh, I'm sure that's what they've done. Well, there, there you go. Then I was completely wrong because there is one flying. Okay. Well, what about fellas? Um, and I, I only say it because um, I, I was. You, you know, we had the uh, the clip of Winkle um, a couple of weeks back. Uh, and I, uh, I put the whole interview together last night, so I listened uh, to it again all the way through. And he was talking about the uh, the comet, the ME, uh, the Messerschmitt one six three, and and flying that. 
uh, and that part of it is just an astounding uh, an astounding story so uh, that that would be quite something yeah i'm not sure we get past health and safety yeah i, mean, I definitely guess, not i i, I just I, I googled um sr 71 still flying and you're right they did i thought nasa still had a research airplane flying but um, it was the 117 which had retired and wasn't flying that there is still seen around the Nevada skies, according to the internet. So that must be the, the black aeroplane I was thinking about. Oh. Did you start Twitter? Were you thinking, no, I can't be wrong. I'm going to Wikipedia. Watch this. Well, I was wondering why I was wrong. <laughs> well, it's very unusual, isn't it? Well, it doesn't happen often. It well, last happened when I thought I was wrong. Well, wasn't the last, wasn't the last version of the SR-71 flying the A-12 Oxcart rather than the SR-71? Oh, check you out. I don't know. I think, oh, it, I, it, I think it might have been. Are you Googling? Good question, something? though. And I think we nailed that. Yes, that yeah, was. That, that was. Next one. Yeah. Right, well. All right, so next one. Here's one from uh, Alan H., Big Wing Photo. Um, have you ever had problems with airspace infringements on big fly past events? Ooh. Ooh. Right, sorry. You have to explain this to me. What does that mean? So that means. Um, <laughs> When you, when you, so take this on July the 10th when the big formation train is flying from Suffolk uh, across down to London and out. They'll put restricted airspace around that route, um, a volume of airspace. So, um, a, a, you know, a particular height um, in thousands of feet and a particular width. Normally, I don't know, five miles either side of track, maybe ten miles, considering the size of this the size of this formation. And it's up to the aeroplanes in that formation to stay with, uh, stay within that. But it's also up to um, all general aviation and other pilots to stay outside of that restricted airspace. Because ah. you do get a lot of sightseers getting airborne from all of those little airfields uh, around the country in their little aeroplanes going to look for an airborne shot of this big fly past coming past. And they and the CAA have prosecuted. They they started prosecuting properly, uh, I guess, about six, seven, eight years ago, maybe, um, uh, because uh, you know transponders are really good now, and in terms of what people can track, um, and prosecute pilots who do go inside of the airspace, uh, whether it's by accident or not, because that notice to airmen, the NOTAM that tells you the restrictions, should be something that you check every time that you go flying. I mm. see. The, the one that I can think of. Dunk, and you'll remember this, was when we were doing the uh, 70th of D-Day in Normandy, and we just launched over there. Dunk was leading it, and we were going to do a fly past at Pegasus Bridge. I think Prince Charles was on the ground, and we were holding for our, our time on target. Was Dunk wearing spotted... a life jacket? <laughs> yeah, he did that time. <laughs> but you spotted a parachute aircraft that was going to drop at Aramange, and it was just, you know, it was just French... When the Brits do it, it just seems fairly pretty slick. You know, if you're doing the fly pass, the airspace is for you. But I think we had that concept that we would just be cleared in. We had to put flight plans in. It was a bit laborious, the process. But we, we were there, and I just remember your tone of voice <laughs> as you're leading it. And uh, did we... We lost you, Oh, did he go at the the uh, the moment critique? Yes, I was thoroughly looking forward to his description as well. No. Oh. It wouldn't so have been have good to, for me. We're going to have no to imagine the tone of your voice. So what happened, Dunk? Well, so um, our um, IP, the initial point, so that uh, we the, the point that we would use the map and stopwatch to then run in 
um, down to the target itself and be on time um, was up to the north of Pegasus Bridge. It was just on the coast. Um, and when we spoke to the air traffic control guys, uh, they, we said that we were on task. We said that we were north of Pegasus Bridge, and they said, oh, uh, uh, fine, there's a, a paradrop uh, going on in your area uh, in the next two minutes. Uh, say again. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, you're there with a, t- a typhoon, a number, I can't remember how many fighters certainly put Parky and I, um, it was Parky and I, and I can't remember where the b- bombers were, um, but we had lots of aeroplanes floating around, and um, a- and these guys were just going to jump out on the practice jump. It was a practice jump for later in the week, and they decided it would be a good idea to do it at exactly the same time as we got a whole stream of aeroplanes going down for the first fly past at Pegasus Bridge. So... Uh, Luckily, I said to them, really, just hold them, don't let them jump. And they got the message to them, thankfully, um, so that we didn't have uh, a bunch of parachutists uh, raining down amongst us just before we uh, we went over Pegasus Bridge. Flipping it, can you imagine that? That would have made the news. Yes. Yeah, it would have been exciting. Well, uh, would you believe it? I believe that I actually have a infringement on airspace story. Whoa. Really? Whoa, yes, exactly. Is Parky back? Yeah, look at that. He's back. That's seamless. Uh, if I remember correctly, when um, is it Lockheed Martin that make the B two? Yeah, I guess. I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Whatever. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. So when the B two bomber was introduced to the public, they wheeled it out, and everyone was allowed to take snaps of it from the front, but they forgot to restrict the airspace above it. So two photographers got into a a light aircraft, and then started started taking pictures from up above, and it made the news. There you go. Oh wow! Yeah, there yeah, you go. Seen again those pilots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they got they got swallowed by the mothership that then turned up. A yeah, Marky, a very, did you, very sad. Did you end hear for the description? Boys. I sort of we lost you for a minute. Um, so I continued. Was that? Uh, did you hear it? I I heard the end bit of you. All I, 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 want, I, I do you... want to just finish with Dunk's voice on this one, though. Um, yeah, exactly. What yeah. Sound like? he, he, oh, he's that, there you go. I think Dunk tried to, in his cockpit. He didn't sound cross. You won't <laughs> how angry he was. We poor little French controller. <laughs> I, I think it worked though. They didn't jump out. They didn't jump out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. So here. Here's a question from Matt Wright um, at Maffy587. Um, how much time slash effort would a display pilot put into displaying against normal operational duties? Um, BBMF, Red Arrows uh, excluded. For example, RF Typhoon Team or old Harrier Tornado crews. So Parky, as an old Tornado um, display pilot, how much time was spent doing all of that? Yeah, so... Tragically, they made me keep instructing. I, I kind of would have liked to have waltzed in, jumped into the display jet, which was flamboyantly painted, uh, and ponced off to the air show. But I, I kind of did a drug deal, and I think I had to work sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Generally took Monday off because I'd been away for the weekend, then sort of planned it on Friday with Jabba, and then uh, and that was it. So, yeah, it was, you know, it definitely had a bit of an impact. I, I think that's why the displays tend to go to OCUs, which are the operational conversion units, so the, the training squadrons, if you like, because the main squadrons are away a lot, and if you do just have one mate who's 
you know, at air shows, and obviously they, they tend to take a spare. It, it does, uh, you know, make it a little bit more of a hit for the for the team. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit, but you you know, you you sort of in the winter, you, you sort of made up for it. Always did a Falklands then, but um, you know, there, there was a fair bit of time away, and obviously during the World Cup, you had to do uh, you know quite a few trips as well. So it, it was. Without doubt, it was a bit of a hit for the uh, the squadron, but bloody good fun. Uh, yeah, so pretty busy. So pretty busy for you guys, though. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, it's just just happy days. I can remember. You know, you you really look forward to. I think sort of end of March, Feb, though, the other way around, end of Feb, March. You know, before you and you could get started and you know start displaying. I did two years, so uh, it, it was just great. You know, that when the summer kicked in. A bit like us on BBMF, wasn't it? You know, you just couldn't wait till late April and uh, and start the work up and winter was over. Uh, now, yeah, it was winter. Godders, yes. read the one from Ian Savage because that, that's a nice, interesting... That's the sort of question that I like. Oh, so from Ian Savage uh, at It's Just Melons. Um, <laughs> the worst air, ever aircraft you've ever flown. Interesting. It's a difficult. I've seen that one, but I think, crikey, you know, there's. Haven't we spoken about this before? There's kind of, and it's a little bit vanilla. But I never flew the all... Harrier, so it's not fair. Well, that is true. That is true. But I, I mean, the um, never good enough. The um... no, and has never stopped going on about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, I, there's, there's, there's actually. It sounds dweeby, but I think there's something to love in everything really I, I mean everything's got you know that when you're flying is has got something about it so there's no way yeah, i can't you, you i, I genuinely can't think of a flight i didn't enjoy i even had to go in a little microlight once that was i'd never thought i'd be in this open-aired um you know it was a it was a hang glider with a motor um and i really enjoyed that you know i wasn't I thought I'd be terrified, but it was it was great. And so I can't, I genuinely can't think of anything bad that I've flown. Maybe the, it's the fact that you're flying at the time makes everything good. Yeah. I, I had yeah. a go in an F3 once, and although I felt <laughs> very nauseous getting into it, it was actually quite good fun. I mean, I'm ashamed to say it, but it was quite good. Sorry, I missed that. Could you say that again, Doug? No. Have you got your hearing trumpet? <laughs> <laughs> I think the... Uh... The F3, we used to have these 2250-litre tanks, these massive sort of ferry tanks. And, and you know, every now and again, you'd be chasing hours on the squadron and they'd put these tanks on. And she had probably about, you know, three hours of fuel. And it it, it, it had a two-and-a-half G limit or something ridiculous. So you couldn't do it. You couldn't really turn or do anything. And that was probably... Normal ops. Yeah, would be the, the low point. You know, just a night sortie in... Let me get this right. Lima fit, we called it. And it was just, oh, you know, I, I'm going to have to somehow see some good in this trip. But I think I was kidding myself. It was it was beginning to get a little bit miserable towards that sort of two hour 15 period of uh, doing intercepts. Now, Doug, yeah. when you said I flew in an F3, I mean, I obviously know you mean the tornado. God knows how I did not know that you meant the tornado. I thought for a second yeah. that you met the F the McDonald the the McDonald F three de, uh, Demon, which I thought that's a bloody unusual aircraft to, to be flying around. <laughs> I would but, love to give it a go. Whatever you it want, is. Wikipedia I don't even again. Know what it looks like. yeah, he's got he's got all the stuff. 
Yeah, that's like I know that's a sort of fifties jet, isn't it? Yeah, I was like, that's a very bizarre jet for you boys to be flying. Parky's yeah. era. The uh, now, so here's one from Lisa Hart. Now, although this is a visual one, um, it's a uh, so there's a lovely picture of of Parky um, sat in his little Spitfire with the door open, um, and one of uh, Disco. Um, looking very steely-eyed. He obviously pulls a blue steel every time he pulls his visor up and gets his mask off by the fence at BBMF, old disco. Uh, but the question is um, uh, from Lisa, at Sketch Lisa, question for this evening, who pulls the best fighter ace face out of the three of you? Examples below. You've got to get that picture out of you boys uh, taking a picture of yourselves, or someone taking a picture of yourselves, in black and white, uh, or by a spit dressed fire. up in the old gear as well unbelievable unbelievable oh, yeah, yeah i must admit lisa takes a really cool picky she you know she was always on the fence when we used to uh take off and uh and then you sort so, of uh, yes yeah, so we'll, we'll get lisa to answer that question actually I think just so. say, who's her favorite for ah, me now is she the one that took the picture of you of you three together no that was um neil cave wasn't it so I mean, Neil. There's no 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 doubting Neil Neil Cave's skill, but the lack of self awareness by you three is shocking. <laughs> what? Because I'm hanging around down by the wing where they wouldn't let because the older boys wouldn't let me on on the aeroplane <laughs> just because I outranked them. Get off! You're not allowed on here. Unbelievable scenes that. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Do, did, did you get it done twice and then you requested in black and white i bet you did no we were we were doing a problem mate we've got loads of photos from that photo shoot it's uh it makes us look like battle of britain uh fighter pilots except about 50 years older than they would have been yeah yeah i, yes. I just didn't want to look ginger <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I think that's about it. on Twitter. I think that's about it because uh, JB's going to have to wrap this up and, uh, and go and watch the telly program. I've got to watch Love Island tonight. That, oh, there is no God. ifs or buts. I do have one more thing for you, and this is just a little bit of a you know a little bit of an incidental thing, which I happen to come across on Twitter and various other things. Um, now, there's obviously a, a huge problem in the UK with <clears throat> aging fast jet pilots not being able to find further f- further employment, and we all feel for you. However, I sent a, an article over to, to Godders. Are you guys aware that there is a new private jet been built which will uh, be supersonic? And I was wondering, would, it, would any of you three be interested in flying that thing? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Duck's never been supersonic, so he doesn't understand. <laughs> ha, have, have you, I'll, I'll have you know I have been supersonic. And it's Dunk doesn't mass- know what that means. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> very very fast duncan it just it, but it, it, it's a huge um it is it, a huge lack of drama about it isn't it there's a number in the speedo goes 1.1 1. 1. oh did you, you do the passenger trip supersonic where we just wind it up and said tell you you've been supersonic <laughs> <laughs> it's too dangerous if you can't help it in the typhoon there's a lady that tells you so the question so- no she tells you the transonic yeah sonic so have yeah. you seen it's the modern Basics, world? Though. Basics, Mason. <laughs> ha- have you seen this aircraft? I know. I know. God has. 
I have it. It's flipping amazing, isn't it? It's uh, it's uh, it's a rerun of the Concord, but from this private company, a, a smaller version of it. Um, it does look fantastic. There's like seven seats or something ridiculous. It might it might be bigger than that, but yeah, like little pri- like little private jet jet side thing made by a company called Zoom. I think they're in Minnesota or somewhere. Wow. Yeah. Are you boys allowed to go supersonic over land in America then? No, you're not, because they did a test over Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma, sorry, um, Oakland, and the amount of complaints they got were, were absolutely enormous. So it have to be um, o- only over the ocean, I think. Yeah, that's you know, the big drawback with it, isn't it? You might, Parker, you might have been on that red flag. Uh, oh, who was it? Was it Wally, or was it somebody else that imploded a caravan in the? <laughs> In the Nellis range, because they were supersonic at low level at 200. And you can imagine, I mean, I dived into a bush when a jet went supersonic at 18,000 feet above me in the range that we used to live under in in South Carolina. I thought the boiler on the back of the house had gone up, but I cannot imagine. You're so brave. I know, I am very, very brave. Fearless one star. (laughs) That's how I got here. jumped into a I ran away from stuff. The, uh, but this F3 was supersonic at low level and flew directly over the top of this. I, you know, I, I have visions of this little old couple, you know, set up for the evening um, <laughs> in their RV and right over the top of this thing, supersonic. And apparently it just folded into a small OXO cube at that point. I, bet. I mean, you do get the occasional stories about an RF jet, which, which has had to go supersonic for whatever reason over Oxfordshire or somewhere. And there's about a thousand phone calls complaining about broken windows. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. You get cleared on on QRA in order to speed up the intercept, um, and it has to be cleared at the highest level that you're cleared supersonic overland right? because every man and his dog will complain. And people think, especially in this day and age, people think bombs are going off all over the place because it is. Um, I don't know whether you ever heard it. You know, Concord down in the southwest. You know, you used to be able to hear the sort of light sonic boom as it. Uh, um, as it transitioned out over the sea. And we're in the Air Force limited to a certain mileage off of the coast before we can actually go supersonic and um, pointing away and pointing towards their, their different figures. Um, but, yeah, so you, you do have to get permission to do it. When you say the highest yeah. the highest level, what is the highest level? Um, well, it's, it, it depends it's on, the, on the, Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it depends on the severity of the situation. Um, but... There'll be a chain of command that will that will run up to a point, you know, which is probably, uh, you know, is beyond the controller that you're speaking to, and someone above that in a command centre that will say you are cleared uh, supersonic. Wow! And uh, JB Typhoon, you know, when it first came out, it was so easy to drop a boom. You know, you're, you're up high. Do you, I mean, auto throttle Goddard was our friend, so you'd you'd set a speed, and and that so you wouldn't accidentally leave the, the throttles in, even just in dry power. It, it would go supersonic so easily. So you'd you'd lock the throttles for the speed in to, say, 0.9. You'd select that. But the problem was, even if you dropped the nose, the jet's quite slippery, and so it would go idle, but it couldn't do anything else. And then that's when she would warn you, isn't it, that transonic, that you're just about to, uh-huh. to go supersonic. And, and you know, you would you'd hear her start to utter those words and you know you would idle a, and pull hard back yeah, on the stick a back turn to try and stop it and then you'd sort of 
just looking at your HUD, just going, please don't say Matt one now, because you knew everybody would be phoning up. And, and the boys did it when it first came out, and it, it got a bit of a, right, the next bloke that goes supersonic overland is in it, you know, so we were, we, it was just uh, it's just such an easy thing to do. So uh, what would happen in that situation? Would you get fined? No, you just got to, you know, I mean, everybody would just, you know, hear that it would just annoy lots of people, rightly, so they would complain, so you would just get a bolly, you know, but it depends how, you know, you, I guess you could get grounded or... Uh, can you remember what happened, Goddard? I, I'm trying to think who, what the punishment was. No, I, I don't think it would... You know, I think ben it was Matthews. just... A, so, yeah, a severe talking to, wasn't it? I mean, I did it myself going through training on the uh, on the Typhoon where um, we were setting up for a, uh, I think it was a 2v1, and I left the throttle up there. Looked at, All I did was look out, heard the transonic, and suddenly I'm doing 1.02 over the top of Grantham at 15,000 feet, thinking, oh. <laughs> Maybe they won't have heard. Yeah, <laughs> no one will notice. It's that same face again as your long bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Right, let's wrap this up. And before we do, I did tease at the beginning of the show. Is it a show or a program? It's a show. Um, it's a show. It's a show. A program's factual. Show's entertainment. We're we're a show, aren't we? Oh, it's um, a program. Is it a program? Well, we'll have to debate that later. Give give me a recommendation for more books. I got one. Go on. So it's called Flying Start by Hugh Dundas. Okay. Oh, that's good. Dundas. Good. That is a good one. It, it, it's a belter, and and it's to me, it's very similar to to First Light in as much it's just absolutely written from the heart. And the bit I I haven't read it for ages, but I might want to read it again. I'm just thinking about it. But the thing I can remember is that this mate, he's Battle of Britain. He ends up, he's a wing commander at 23, or maybe yeah. group, captain. group captain at 24. It's something. Yeah, group captain at 24. Yeah, leading the but, leading the group out in Italy, isn't he? In Italy, yeah. But he, he during the Battle of Britain, particularly when he's young, he has this overwhelming desire, just through fear, as they're sort of about to hit the merge, you know, with all these German aircraft. He is just so scared. He, he just wants to be sick, and he he's he kind of looks around. He he doesn't seem to. He thinks he's the only one that is this scared, and it, it really troubles him. And he just writes. So honestly, to say that, he, he almost questions his own bravery in it. And he's wow. obviously a, a complete legend, and he, he turned out to be you know, a ridiculously famous fighter pilot. But it, it's, it's a great read, absolutely written from the heart. Yeah, I've got one. I'd agree that was brilliant. Um, fighter pilot by Paul Ritchie, um, yeah. a, a one-squadron hurricane pilot as the squadron enters the war. And it's basically about the Battle of France, and uh, I think finishes then. Um, oh, wow. But... Uh, uh, really well written, and does he bail out? About yeah, he's he's very badly injured, and I think he writes it as he's convalescing, doesn't he? Yes, and uh, and and then he's he goes back into action. I think he's killed then, isn't he? Oh. Yeah. Oh wow! So it's about as real as as real time writing as you can get, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. and it Incredible is really well stuff. written. Yeah, uh, my one is called Silver Spitfire, um, uh, which is written by uh, Tom Neal, who's a Battle of Britain pilot he's done another one called gun button to fire but no, this one talks that. About... i haven't read silver spitfires ah it's great it's really good um and it talks about his adventures effectively he kind of he, he finds this silver spitfire and uh, you know and i think i can't remember exactly why he has to get he has to get out of somewhere he thinks well i'll take this it's this um he says to to some mechanics can you get this going so they get it going and, and he goes off and he ends up sort of 
getting more and more worried that he's going to get done because he's nicked this Spitfire and no one will take it off him. And it, he goes around, he gets, um, he, he gets um, seconded to the American Air Force. He's uh, one of the first. In fact, he thinks he, he is the first to land, but it wasn't recorded officially um, uh, in France on D-Day. Oh. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it's an astounding book. And, uh, I mean, I, I think, again, the, what makes it special is that, um, you know, we, we've met Tom and, um, and, in fact, all of us, I think, uh, well, certainly Parky and I have uh, flown with him. Were you flying with him at that time? God, as I can't remember. No, I've met him a couple of times. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, him. yeah. So I, that's uh, that's my recommendation. It's a great book. Excellent. Can we just the, the funniest story ever? And I can't swear in it, but Dunk and I did a, a fly past, and Tom was there. It was at the Kinema, wasn't it? It was a screening of the Battle of Britain in 2015. Oh, this is genius. And it is just, I I, I cry with laughter. So the station's there, and he's in his full number one, so his full station commander kit. With all his, you know, stuff that uh, Goddard wears every day. And, You're not uh, naming names, Parky. And can we name names? Yeah, it's, it's, it's it dear old Jez Atridge. So <laughs> Jez is there, and he sees that the two veterans, you know, in there. And I think Tom is in a wheelchair, or he's just sitting with a sort of uh, a rug around his legs. And he, and he went up, and uh, Tom Neal sort of looks up, and we're, and we're just doing the fly past. And Tom goes, "Those aircraft up there." And uh, Jez goes, "Those Tom." are a Spitfire and a Hurricane. <laughs> and Tom Neal goes, I know what the F they are. Is that LF-363 with P7? And Jez Atkins said he, he just, he wanted the world. It was utterly brilliant. <laughs> On that bombshell. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Right, well, before we go, a little bit of housekeeping. Will we get a podcast out before our team outing? to Farnborough oh yes oh, I hope so flipping it that's July 20th isn't it that's miles away well we don't know with your well with, with your respective schedules well that's true well we'll try how about we try I think we should try and do more yeah 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 definitely yep. we'll definitely get, yeah. get, get one before then it's cathartic for me and um, we'll get another long, one long. at Farnborough will we Is or at a simulator when, when, when's that well, we don't know. We're still uh, so there's lots of uh, exciting things going on, aren't there? So uh, we don't know yet. We're hoping the A380 simulator with British Airways with uh, our guest uh, Andy Holland, uh, and uh, we're hoping uh, at Farnborough to do a, a podcast there. And there, are, of course, there'll be some fascinating things to uh, to do there. So fingers crossed that'll all work out. I genuinely cannot wait for the, a- the A380 simulator. Uh, only only just so I can dress you up all as air hostesses and uh, and uh, continually serve me tea. <laughs> I'm dressed I think, like that I think now. you should leave that there, JB. That sounds very weird. <laughs> I'm dressed like that now. <laughs> <laughs> right, boys. Uh, well, everyone, everyone, look after yourself, and I'll st- speak to you in a couple of weeks. Speak to you soon, mate. Bye, bye, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.